Hey everybody, welcome to CookPod, the podcast that will not be televised. I'm Peter Barrett. This week I talked to Karen Washington of Rise and Root Farm in Chester, New York. It's a woman-owned cooperative farm uh, in the black dirt country of uh, the very southern edge of the Hudson Valley, almost uh, on the New Jersey line. And I've wanted to talk to her for a while. She's uh, an extraordinary community organizer, activist, advocate for urban gardens and sustainable food sources for low-income and underserved communities. In 2012, Ebony Magazine named her one of the 100 most influential African Americans in the country, and two years later in 2014, she won a James Beard Foundation Leadership Award. Since the growing season is fully underway, uh, there's a lot going on in my garden that I'll talk about at some point soon. Um, I wanted to talk to a farmer. Uh, I think she's a particularly inspirational example, uh, and in the 10 plus years now that I've been writing about food, farmers have consistently made up uh, the most intelligent and certainly hardworking people that I've had the pleasure to meet in my various travels and assignments. Where your food comes from really matters, and how you vote with your dollars in terms of purchasing food matters every bit as much as how you vote in the voting booth. So shopping for food and especially growing food, and especially growing food with a specific market or audience in mind, can be a pretty profound form of activism. And uh, you can think about that while you listen to her talk uh, at some length about these issues. And if just a few more people in this country had voted the way black women overwhelmingly did, we would be living in a profoundly different society right now. So you can think about that as well while she's talking. She's car washer let's like car washer but with a k on instagram rise and root farm is rise and root farm on instagram i'm cookblog on instagram cookpod.net a cookblog.com she's at riseandrootfarm.com so here's me talking to karen washington at the farm or just around the corner from the farm on a beautiful early may day So I didn't realize that you're you're still back and forth. Yes. Yeah, so I still live in the Bronx. Uh -huh. I still run a farmers market in the Bronx. I still have a community garden in the Bronx. As a matter of fact, I was up early this morning as we got a delivery of three pallets of compost mm. and trying to negotiate parking, trying to set up barriers so mm. people wouldn't park in front of the garden. Yeah. Only to find out when I woke up this morning if someone had removed the barrier uh. so they can get into the spot. Uh. And so I said, you know, I'm just so defeated. And then I took a shower, and as I took a shower, it came out, someone left the spot. So then I grabbed another barrier and put it there, and I called the guys, I says, look, I have been fighting the last couple of days to save this spot, and I got it saved, and how long are you gonna be? So he said, we're on our way, we're on our way. And as I'm sitting in my kitchen watching, someone stopped and was about to move, and it's like, what does a barrier mean? Yeah. It was like, come on. You know, and it happened to be someone that I, but I knew, and I got on him. I said, you know, didn't you see a big, didn't you see garbage bags and pallets? He said, yes, I wonder who put it there. I said, well, I did, because I don't want people to park there. And it's like, ah, New York, parking in New York City is crazy. It is. I don't, so, I don't miss it. I don't miss it. Uh, I lived in Brooklyn for 10 years before oh, I moved up here. And yeah, I really don't. The alternate side. Oh, crazy, crazy. So, um... Yeah, so I'm here today. Today is Thursday. So you, Thursdays and Mondays are really harvest days. So mm -hmm. I got to be here Thursday. And I got to be here Monday. But like I said, not right now I'm here all week because my market doesn't start until July. Mm -hmm. So once I start July, then um, Mondays um, I go to the farm. The last couple of months, Tuesdays, I've been going back home because I've been teaching farm mm -hmm. school. been teaching a class for farm school. Where's that? That's at uh, farm school classes down at 
um, People's Forum, mm -hmm. which is on 37th Street in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And so, so Tuesdays I haven't been here, and then Wednesdays I'm here, sleepover Thursday, sleepover. So that's how it goes. Mm -hmm. then, so there's a in the, the house at the farm there. The, no, no, Jane and Michaela, the mm -hmm. two women that you met, they have a three bedroom, oh, so okay. I stay with them okay. mm -hmm, during the week. And then Lori, our other farm partner, she has a tiny house um, on the other side of the farm. Okay. So we make it work. So how, how long has this farm been in We've operation? Been, this, we're going into our fifth year. Fifth year, okay. And how did it come about? That, because it's a local yeah. group that owns the land, right? Yeah, I tell people, you know, when I give this spiel, I tell people to dream big mm -hmm. and speak, you know, let your dreams filter out into the universe because I would go to different workshops and talk in different panels, and I would look to my right and look to my left, and these young people getting me land, and I'm just like, I'm not getting any land. And so wherever I would go, I would always say, you know, me and my friends were looking for land, and I just happened to be on a tour of the farm hub up the day that is now um, in operation along Hudson um, Valley. Mm -hmm. They were just in the process of doing this brand new uh, farm hub and they had people on buses to do a tour of what the project might look like. Mm -hmm. And I just happened to sit next to this guy named Steven Rosenberg. Do you know him? He's, he's, know. Well, he's the ED director of Scenic Hudson, which is an organization oh, sure. that is to preserve land upstate. And at that time, I was the president of the New York City Community Garden Coalition. So I says, well, I'm the president of an organization that's, that's trying to preserve land and community gardens in New York City. And so we got to talking. And so I was telling him, you know, me and my friends, we've been up and down the Hudson Valley. And land has been very, very expensive. And yeah. we want to try to um, find some land that's somewhat close to the city. So he said, well, I got a telephone number. I want you to call uh, this number and because um, they're just starting a new project. And you know you, get the, you know you get numbers and you get telephone numbers, you take them home out of your pocket and you put them on the dresser and you say, yeah. but something said, Karen, call, you have nothing to lose. And the person on the other end said that there's a new project up in Chester, New York. He started dropping names of people that I knew. And so he said, if you're interested, you and your partners come, meet me at the Chester Diner, mm -hmm. and the rest is history. Wow. So. Uh, we were one of the original farms, so it was um, with we, we we are the original ones. Then it's um, Sunsprout that's still there, Dirty Boots. They just left to go to another project. This was a NIFA project at first, and so they went to another project. And then um, Travis, uh, they had some farmland here, but now they work with their father who has um, Blooming Hill Farm, and so now we have. Rising Root, which is our farm. We have Sunsprout. Simon has around 60 acres. We have um, Dig In, which is a restaurant. They have around 30 acres. Hmm. And um, we just uh, got a new group of farmers. They're going to be growing hemp. Hmm. And then we have um, Charles, who has one and a half acres. Okay. And, and this is this is all land that's been donated or leased for, by the uh, town. Right. Or? So no, Chester Agricultural Center is a group of investors. Okay. That purchase 160 acres of land. Okay. And, and this is all beautiful black right, dirt bottom uh, land. Right. And their vision and mission is to provide land reasonable for beginning farmers. Mm -hmm. So that's their mission. And so right now we have they have the land. But right now we're so the infrastructure. So next year they're going to try to expand because again the land is here and farmers, you know, want to come. But right now we're out of greenhouse space. We're out of um, refrigeration space, storage, cold storage space. We're just we just have no room now. So so you can't grow without some more infrastructure. Right, we can't we can't take on other, we can grow we can't take on other people. I see. At this point in time, I mean, grow in terms of the business. Oh yeah, right. In terms of right, other farmers coming up. Yeah. As a matter of fact, we just had a. So do you know Cheryl Rogalski? I don't. Okay, so don't Cheryl Rogalski so. is a, like a Shiro. I mean, everyone knows her because she got the MacArthur Award. She's been. Oh yes, of course. Yeah, right, yeah. I'm not good with names. Right, but right, you know who I'm talking about. So yeah. So Friday, uh, today is so Tuesday. This Tuesday. Her and I did a uh, panel discussion. She talks about uh, being on the Black Dirt 
her and her family, and I, my perspective was being a newbie on the black dirt. Mm -hmm. And the two of us went back and forth about how it is growing food on the black dirt, what are some of the challenges. Um, and so again, so people in the audience that were really good, there was maybe around 30 people, uh, some of them who are interested in um, buying land or purchasing land. We have a lease agreement. Our mm -hmm. lease agreement is it's a 30-year wow, renewable okay. lease. That's great. Of. So you have no, no worries about Right, no worries about that, exactly. And so um, it's been great. It really has been, it's been really been great. So. And so, so the investors are taking a long view of it, it sounds like. They're not looking for a quick return. They're, they're willing right. to build viable right. businesses that become part of the community. Correct, and then, and then they also now started a nonprofit. Mm -hmm so that they can help, you know, get funding and grants because, you know, if you're just a for-profit, it's hard. You don't have to get investment money. But yeah. if now they have a nonprofit entity that will help um, secure funding, especially for infrastructure, which is really, really important. Yeah. So. And so five years in, how's the, like, you know, there's sort of the balance sheet of the farm in terms of... Yeah, so that is really, really, it's a work in progress, which is so ironic. And I tell the story all the time is that, so we all come from New York City and community garden background, mm -hmm. so, you know? And so understanding the difference in the soil makeup, the black dirt that is in the city, which is mostly soil that's brought in, yeah. topsoil brought in, compost that's brought in, and then the temperature, the, the different sort of, uh, small climates mm -hmm. that are filtering difference between up here and in new york is like a 10 degree difference sure. and so getting um used to that and then the first year because you're so excited that you've moved up and you've got land that you want to grow everything you yeah. know you get the catalog oh yeah i've been you there. know that you yeah. right you've been the catalog so we had all three different types of kale and collards and squash yeah. and tomatoes yeah, yeah. and peppers. Plus it's January when you're ordering, so you're like, I need greens. I need all the vegetables. Yeah. Wow. And so we did that our first year. Yeah. <clears throat> now we're four women, right? And we do a lot of things by hand. We have a walk-behind tractor. Mm -hmm. We didn't understand the weed pressure here. Mm. So it grows the best, the best vegetables. Yeah, and the best weeds. Yeah. Baby. Yeah. And if you're not on top of the weeds, by the time you're working on one section of the farm, the weeds have taken over. Yeah, yeah. I saw you using a lot of the black plastic. The oh, holes. we had yeah. to learn. I mean, yeah. again, the first year we didn't do that. You know, we figured, hey, yeah. you know, we're in the black dirt. Not thinking about, yeah, so does the weeds like the black dirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so learning that, and you know, we had a mentor, John Paul Cortez from Roxbury Farm, who told us from the very beginning as neophytes. He says, you're going to get excited and you want to grow everything. Mm -hmm. He said, but take five things and grow them the best. Mm -hmm. So now we're doing that. So what is it that we found out that we can grow, that people like, that we're associated with it? So our heirloom tomatoes are tremendous. So mm -hmm. heirloom tomatoes, we grow and grow them very well. They just, as you saw, we're about to put some down in the greenhouse. We grow edible flowers, mm -hmm. grow them very well. We grow a flower called Lysianthus because in the beginning we were growing all types of flowers. We were growing all types of zinnias, you name it, uh, Cleomies, Coreopsis, everything that you can imagine. And so what we found out is that the Lysianthus, which is a really, really hardy, and beautiful plant almost looks like a rose, mm -hmm. and that it's, it's it's limited in terms of care and harvesting, and the amount of money that we were getting for that bouquet of Elizianthus that keeps coming back, yeah, um, really helped us a lot. So we focus on Elizianthus, and then we do uh, herbs, we do um, medicinal and edible herbs, and that's where we found this is our niche. Now, we're going to do some trials for um, a couple of people. We'll do some trials. And then we'll try and grow. Um, so we also grow for um, the community gardens in New York City. Mm -hmm. So the seedlings that you saw, um, some of them will go to uh, the community gardens in New York City. 
We also grow the uh, starts for the Bronx hot sauce, mm -hmm. which is serrano peppers. Mm -hmm. So we grow the starts, and then we give them to um, the community gardens that are growing the uh, serrano peppers um, for the hot sauce. We've also have a strong relationship to New York City since we've come from New York City, yeah. and all of us teach at farm school. We're all farm school teachers, so that we have so many visitors come up to the to the point that we now have to really be intentional and organized right. and say that the last Saturday of June, July, August, September, October mm -hmm. is community day. Right. Because when people just pop up. Yeah, yeah you're away, working. Yes, they yeah. don't want to stand that. You don't want to be rude. Right, but so you want now, to show them around and then you've lost an hour right. or two. And, you can yeah. say that again. So yeah. that's why we do community days and um, yeah, we're making it work. But that's great that you're getting all these visitors, right? We get a lot of visitors, a lot of, we get a lot of colleges. We get people from Columbia, NYU, Hunter. Uh, yeah, we get a lot of um, yeah, visitors, mm -hmm. so it's really good. And so that's my sort of forte, is trying to do the events, mm -hmm. since I you know, know a lot of people. Yeah, and, uh, well, so, all right, so jumping back, you're from the Bronx, you grew up there. Yes, I am. So how did you, um, you know, how did you end up, I guess, to start with becoming involved in community gardens and then from there to here? Uh, I'd love to hear that too, but just yes. uh, I'm interested in the very beginning, you know. How sure. So I grew I've lived in New York City all my life. I grew up in the Lower East Side in the projects, Jacob East Houses. Mm -hmm. And then in 68, we moved to Harlem. Um, and then from there, I moved to the Bronx in 1985. Mm -hmm. And it was a brand new development. Um, where I was living and uh, had a huge backyard and I had several options either to cement it some people cement it they don't want to be bothered by planting anything yeah. put a lawn on, on it or to grow food and I decided I want to grow food and I had no idea what I was doing no experience before that none whatsoever my parents grandparents nobody yeah. um, and um, I was so a physical what, therapist at so the where time. do you think it came from is it, did it come from I working think, with people's bodies and seeing I mean I think, honest, you just really like to cook I think is in, in the, I think no to believe believe it or not you know some things are planted like a seed because I remember when I was a kid um, before getting up early in the morning six o'clock in the morning there used to be a thing called the farm report and I always fantasized that one day I would have a farm. Hmm. You know, and I was a kid at the time, yeah. um, and I was just fascinated by that. Um, Had you been to farms, seen them, or no, you, was but just I, listening? I to went them? to a farm one time, but just by going to camp, I just liked outdoors. Yeah, uh, going to camp, I just loved being outdoors, and so I think it was really in me. And I think I remember what got me hooked was growing that tomato because they say tomatoes and tomatoes in the store were pale. And yeah. And there was a tomato that was red, and I bit into it. That changed my world. The taste yeah. was incredible. And this was your first backyard tomato? My first backyard tomato, yeah. and then I wanted to grow everything. Yeah, the that'll do was, it. That will do it. And then really getting more, in, and then looking at what was happening um, in front of my house because there was supposed to be further development, but the developer left it, and that became an empty lot. Huh. So the first three years, this beautiful house houses that we had, we were looking at this empty lot, which was filled with garbage, and no matter how we tried to clean it out, in the middle of the night, people would dump um, abandoned cars, they would dump tires, and if you can recall, the crack epidemic was really, really heavy at that time. Right, so this so is mid-80s. Yeah. Mid-80s, right, yeah. so it was really, really cra crazy trying to combat that, and then I got involved in activism with um, the New York City Community Garden Coalition where I became president, working, fighting City Hall about preserving community gardens. Mm -hmm. well, so you, you just jumped from getting involved to becoming president. Like, I assume there was a little bit of time passed? Yeah, there was a little bit of time passed, a little bit of time. I mean, you know, uh, I think we were all in our little silos and we all thought that in the city where we were doing community garden work because back at that time they had, the uh, regulation was really, very, very um, minimal. You know, all you had to do was just, you know, get some land, find find an empty lot, and grow something on it, mm -hmm. and um, let Green Thumb know you get a license, and that was it. 
And so this air complacency, you thought that you were doing something really good for the city because at that time the city was going through a fiscal crisis. The parks were horrible. They had no money to help parks, um, especially in, in marginalized communities, underserved communities. And they became just a haven for drug dealers and prostitution and garbage. Mm -hmm. And so when you have people with no resources come together and turn those beautiful places into community gardens, um, you figure that you're doing the city a favor. Sure. But when Giuliani, in the in the middle of the night, tried to auction off community gardens, I think then all of a sudden a light went on and it really moved community gardens into community activists mm -hmm. and really started looking at the social issues that were impacting our community. So it wasn't just about gardening, it was about housing, you know, affordable housing, it was about safe streets, it was about no heat and hot water, it was about overcrowding in schools, uh, it was about the, the crack epidemic. So it was a lot of things, and also asthma that was happening in the Bronx. So it was right. a lot of right. environmental, economic, health, you name it, and that food was intersecting. Mm -hmm. And I got involved in living in the Bronx, and that really spearheaded me into my activism, become the president of the New York City Community Garden Coalition, become the president of, of a local um, community organizing or, or organization called the Northwest Bronx Community and Clergy Coalition, where I really found my voice mm -hmm. and really understood the mechanics of, 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 po of politics, you know, especially city, city politics, in terms of who are the people with the power, who are the people to go to to make sure that they were accountable in what they were doing. So I had to learn about the community boards and city council and assembly and senators and um, congressmen and going out to meet them and knocking on doors and setting up meetings with them to the point that um, practically I knew all my elected officials and I knew exactly who I was. Mm -hmm. And taking that and teaching that to other community gardens and community residents about how to be more active in their community, to be more vocal, and to make sure that the politicians were accountable. Yeah, it's a powerful lesson because there's no substitute for that legwork. No and people who are despairing today, which is pretty much everyone I know, could really need to just sit with that idea for a little while because it's yeah. a lot of hard work in front of us. A lot of hard work. And so, you know, when you talk about food justice and food sovereignty, I teach a course sometimes on that. You know, I, you know, I tell people that what does that mean? And they'll give me a cookie cutter definition. And I said, it's not a passive movement. This work is active. And if you're not actively involved in like, dismantling racism or working food insecurity, then you're not doing the work. And so right. just to sit down and just say, you, you, you be inverse because you know what the definitions are, but yet you're not doing the work means nothing. Right. So how long then did it take for you to you know, sort of become president and make it into a, a force to be yeah. reckoned with and start really changing empty lots into gardens? Yes, I always say that, um, so I moved in 85, and I would say towards um, the late 80s, because the late 80s really getting involved in uh, the late 80s, early 90s, because Giuliani tried to auction off the gardens in nine, 1998. Mm. So, um, I would say by um, 98, 2000, that's when I became the president of um, the New York City Community Garden Coalition, and mm -hmm. I was president for like around six years. And that's all five boroughs? All five boroughs. Wow. How all many gardens boroughs. are there, you know, or were there at there, that time? Well, at that time, there were close to 600 community gardens. Wow. Mm -hmm. 600 how, many, how many acres did that add up to? Do you remember? Gosh, I don't know, but yeah. it was a lot of it's acres. A, lot. a yeah. lot. And right now there's around 400. That's impressive. And we continue to fight. Ugh. So now, as a matter of fact, they just, now they give us license. They don't call them lease. They give us license, mm -hmm. four-year license. But a lot of things we had to fight for. At one time, they wanted to give us two-year licenses, and we had to fight for that. And then um, they want us to pay insurance, and we had to fight for that. No, so we don't pay for insurance. So a lot of things we had to fight for. Uh, we continue to we continue to push it. You know, we continue to push for preservation. Right now, one of the um, older gardens down in the Lower East Side, I think it's Elizabeth Street Garden, is fighting for its life. Where 
by the city wants to take it and build affordable housing. Mm -hmm. You can define what that Meaning means. Meaning what, only, only $850,000? Please. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and giving these developers carte blanche, you know, and just buying up property, paying just like a dollar. But anyway, again, um, continue to make sure that there's green space for the next generation. Because I look at, I'm so not upset, but I don't know if I want to live in New York City, you know, anymore. I don't because mm -hmm. it's become so expensive. Yeah. Manhattan's become so expensive. Neighborhoods become so gentrified. And they're just pushing people to their limit. And it's become, you know, a place for wealthy people. And New York was always like that melting pot. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I got involved with uh, with uh, New York City, um, become the president of the New York City Community Garden Coalition, and uh, trying to work, do that, and then working with the Northwest Bronx Community and Clergy Coalition. That was that came um, before I became president. I was the president of the Northwest Bronx Community Clergy Coalition before I became president of the Northwest Bronx. And that was dealing with social issues. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted the Northwest Bronx to work on was food issues. And so that's why I left to spend more time in um, food and farming and community gardens. Yeah. Because they were interested in working on housing. They were working, doing a lot of things on housing. And they were really fighting the city on this property called the um, Armory in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. Working on the Kingsbridge Armory, putting a lot of energy to try to turn that into a um, almost like a, a land trust, getting businesses in it, getting schools in it, and they were fighting. Um, then it was the mayor of Bloomberg because he wanted to um, put big businesses in there, and if you put big businesses, then what you do is you you displace the mom and pop businesses that have been there for Absolutely. a long time. And so they were putting a lot of emphasis on that, and I was looking at my community and looking at the health and food issues, along as being a physical therapist, looking at the diet-related diseases and their relationship to food and their health, that I was telling them, I said, look, we need to talk about hunger and poverty, and they weren't um, going that direction. So then I started to put my main focus on, um, on urban agriculture here in, in New York City. Right. And so when you would when you would talk to people who were either skeptical or just not really aware of the issues that you were dealing with, um, did you come to them sort of from a nutrition point of view, a health point of view? Or like what, what, how was, what was your way in to, con to convince people, you know? To, to, to grow food or to be... Well, to grow food or to help you grow food or oh, to help well, turn lots well, into gardens. Well, well, I think, well, the thing is, is that there was an era of despair mm -hmm. and hopelessness. I mean, you know, you live in a neighborhood. Some people have been in that neighborhood for so long. And at that time, you know, the fact that the Bronx was, quote, burning and there were so many empty lots. It looked like a war zone, and there were people that couldn't move left. They, yeah. you know, people moved into the suburbs. You know, they they call it white flight because sure. people that had money and prestige were able to leave, and those that didn't have to stay. And so, um, how you know, you look at this lot, and you look at what the potential could be, and the fact that people started growing flowers. It wasn't about food at first. Mm -hmm. It was about beautification. Yeah. And I think when people started to see that they could that this was land that they could take, you know, and that they could do something with that land mm -hmm. and no one was bothering them, you know, and they started to especially in communities of color where people from African American and Latino population, they came from farms. Yeah. You know, they grew I mean this was part of their culture and their history. So it was like it wasn't rocket science for them to to go in and clean these lots yeah. and started putting flowers. It's what you do. It's what you do when you have a bare patch right. of ground. Exactly. So, so in in terms of getting people to buy in, that was it was really easy. It was it was easy doing that, going around um, the city and just talking to people. But then the next step was then, okay, so how do we keep these gardens? Right, well, that's right. exactly right. So, right. so that's the next step was to, to try to get people organized and, and sending out the message that who has the power? We have the power. You know, they say you can't fight City Hall. And that, at the time, before 9-11, you know, you could go in masses and demonstrate 
in front of City Hall. Mm -hmm. And we used to do that. We used to bring our signs. And some of us were dressed up as plants. Huh. And, and, and so what you, were, what you were agitating for at that time was long-term... Um, like license, right, lease, we whatever. We wanted the, preservation. We right. wanted, we wanted, we wanted the community to own those gardens. We mm -hmm. wanted those gardens for life to and, make and, sure. That and so, from a legal point of view, how far we were able to get towards actual ownership of some well, of these spaces? Well, the thing about it depends on it depends on who won the mayoralship. Uh -huh. At that time, it was Mark Green. We mm -hmm. had a good chance of doing that, and then the next of it was Christine Quinn. Mm -hmm. You know, but the fact that we had hardliners like Bloomberg, um, again, because they started to realize the potential of land ownership. Sure. And now, I mean, now it's an afterthought. They wouldn't even think about um, giving up land at this point in time. As a matter of fact, the, the present um, mayor, de Blasio, has his mandate of, of um, developing uh, 200,000 units of housing. So where I live in the Bronx now, you know, the outer boroughs, every vacant lot that you can find is being um, developed on. Yeah. And, you know, on the one hand, you can understand that because there is a, a, a serious shortage of affordable housing. But on the other hand, you need open space as well. Without a doubt. And so we also went to a lot of um, um, planners, a lot of urban planners at Pratt, at other universities to speak to them about when they're looking at design is to incorporate green space in that design. It yeah, I was to just going to ask you about rooftop gardens. Definitely, and rooftop like that. gardens, definitely. And we encourage young planners to think about as you move forward into the next decade of housing to make sure that that housing is, that there's some sort of green space that's incorporated into that housing development. And again, using our platform to reach out to um, housing developers, reach out to city planners to think about green space, which is really, really important. Um, again, we tell people time and time again, community gardens in, 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 in any municipality has political consequences because the same thing, I've traveled all around the country and I've been to Detroit and I've been to Baltimore and I've been to Philly and I've been to Oakland and especially Detroit and, and Philly that, and Baltimore that have so much land mm -hmm. out there. I just came back from Gainesville, Florida. Again, so much land and it's like I'm trying to tell people, you know, try to own that land, you know, try to own it because the economy is going to turn. There's yeah. going to be an influx of more people moving into urban areas and woulda, coulda, shoulda. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. so really, you know, going around and speaking to them to try to, to for land ownership is so so important. Yeah, my grandfather used to say the thing about land is they're not making any more of it. That's right. He's absolutely right. And so what I try to tell people, especially here in New York, we are as safe as the present uh, mayor. Mm -hmm. So whenever there's uh, election for a new mayor, the candidates, we make sure that we interview all the candidates to make sure that community gardens are on their radar. Yeah. And then we, you know, we gauge them. Are you for or are you against community gardens? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So and what, so what are you seeing when you go out in the country to, to talk and to educate people? What, what kind of, a, a, yeah. lot of, a lot of hunger for this sort of uh, information? And... Yes, definitely. So I really talk to a lot of uh, communities of color. Because mm -hmm. um, for me, it's really, really important when people ask me to speak. I really want to go and make sure that I'm, that I meet and see the people who are doing the work on the ground and that I go visit communities of color who are going back to the land because for so long, as African-Americans, we have been taught that to go away from the land because it was a stain of slavery. Mm -hmm. And so once having that, that dialogue and that history to let people know the reason why we were brought here, we weren't brought here because of our brains, I mean, because of our, our strength, we were brought here because of our know-how, our knowledge of agriculture. And once you start putting that seed into people, young people's mind is that, you know, we come from an agrarian um, culture. Um, agriculture is in our genes and getting people to understand that. Don't let the stain of slavery get you away from the land. It's, it's you need to go back to the land. And yeah. so putting that um, imprint into young black and brown youth, they understand the power of land, they understand the power of, 
of growing their own food, their mm. relationship between food and health. Yeah. Plus, it feels good. It feels good. <laughs> tastes good. Tastes good. It's a spiritual. For me, it's very spiritual. Yeah, no, I that connection that to things growing and nurturing things. And, yeah, There's something Steve. about that. Do you know Michael Twitty, the food historian? Yes, I do. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. so, I mean, what's so interesting and powerful about what he's doing is, is you know, as reclaiming essentially the most of Southern American food mm-hmm. as African food. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact that that's such a surprise to so many people mm-hmm. is, you know, well, whatever. We have a lot of, a lot of such unpleasant surprises in the world. But uh, it's... Yeah. it's uh, I, I really admire that because I'm really interested in all the different ways that the food of today is made mm-hmm. up of things that came from other places. Yep. And uh, it's uniquely American in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, disability, like you were saying, this melting pot where things collide and, yep. and, and they, they improve a lot of times as a result of the, so. these different influences and good ideas from here and good ideas from there that never would have met otherwise. Right, and getting people to remember their past. As a physical therapist, you know, I used to tell my patients, you know, I'm a farmer. They would say, oh, Miss Washington, how could you? That was such backbreak. I would never do it again. Mm. But then when I would talk, talk about the food that I was growing and how it tastes, all of a sudden, Miss Washington, you know what, you're absolutely right. It was hard work, but we had meals each and every day. That's we right. We would just go out you know, and just harvest, and we would have plenty of food. And, and if we didn't have food, neighbors would share food. And then she would say, you know, my parents lived till they were 90 and 100, and here I am now, 70, with type 2 diabetes, some with amputations, some with strokes, some with end-stage renal disease, mm-hmm. all related to their food. And as a physical therapist, I used to get on that because before I would even do my treatment, I had so much fun with my patients. I loved my job. I would say, okay, so you know what I'm here for. I said, before I can do any exercise, we need to do some evaluation. So I see um, on your chart that you're type two diabetic or that you're hypertensive. So before we do anything, I need to see your medication and then I need to go to the kitchen. Ms. Washington, why are you going to the kitchen? Because I want to see what's in that refrigerator. Open that refrigerator. Oh, Ms. Washington. Now, come on. Now, you're a diabetic. What's the cookies and the, and the ice cream in here? Now, you know better than that. And the sodas and stuff. Come on. I said, then I said, open that cabinet. Oh, Ms. Washington, do I have to? I said, that's right. Open that cabinet. I used to have so much fun with them, but I wanted them to realize that the food that they were eating, the process was killing them. Yeah. And so when I would uh, do my farmer's market, I would make sure that I would bring them some fresh vegetables. I said, this is what you should be eating, you know, and um, really earned the respect of, my, of, of my, my patients, really, and then got them to thinking, you know what, life wasn't that bad after all. As a mm-hmm. matter of fact, it was much better. They just looked at the labor aspect of it, but in terms of the quality of life that they had, yeah. so much better. Well, and also not for nothing, now. but gardening, you know, it might not be the most strenuous, but it's good exercise. So you get your workout while you do the gardening, and then you get to eat the best food in the world, yeah, which is that, like you said, that backyard tomato that changes your life. Changed my life, right? And here I am, 30, 34 years later. Amazing. It's really, truly on this journey. So talk to me a little bit about how this farm represents the sort of you know, the next logical step in yeah. getting out of the city, having access to more land, and then and, and what, what you're using this to leverage. Well, the thing is, first of all, we're using it to leverage the fact that we're four women. Yay. Yeah. Two of us are black, Lori and I. Mm-hmm. Um, three of us are LGBTQ women. Yay. Mm-hmm. And so there's a message out there in the fact that we're women, people of color, LGBTQ. So right there, there's a message. Right. And we're taking that message in terms of diversity which is really, really important because there's definitely a lack of diversity uh, when it comes to farming. No question. And so we're bringing that, we're bringing the fact that we're women and we're, it's more than just nurturing, that we're badass women. Yeah. Um, and we're out there to change the food system on our behalf and to have our voices being res- resonate, to resonate within a food population that for so long has limited the amount of resources for women in general, globally, mm-hmm. in terms of technology, in terms of education, just so many, in terms of resources. And so we're providing that voice. We're very outspoken. Yeah. Um, well, you have and, to be. Yeah, and then we allow the farm to be a platform for healing. So when certain things happen, when they had the, um, 
the incident down in Florida when they were shooting at the LGBTQ um, place. The club? The club. The club. Mm -hmm. So we opened up the farm for the LGBTQ community. As a matter of fact, uh, next month we're having Farm Pride. Mm -hmm. um, again, opening our farm in this place to the LGBTQ community as a safe space. Mm -hmm. um, a safe space for people who feel that they're, they're lost or feel that they don't fit in. That that farm that our farm speaks to that. Yeah, and it, to those it's people. hard in rural areas to feel a mm -hmm. lot of support. Exactly, very very hard because especially farmers are very isolated because you know you you're acres apart. You know. Well, but also just you know, rural communities on balance are less liberal than urban ones. Yeah, they are, and so coming here it was really eye opening because this is definitely Trump territory. Yeah. Um, but we're not here to make ways. We're here to make peace. Mm -hmm. How's the reception and been? As in, like, very good. Yeah. It really has. You know, I mean, people have been very. Um, you know what? Don't talk po politics. No. Just don't, <laughs> just don't talk politics no. and just do the work. It's a lot easier to agree about tomatoes. Exactly. That's right. What are you good at? What's your message? Right. And don't bring in politics, and you're fine. People will buy your product. Yeah. 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 Well, that's so. Um, so besides the fact of your existence and besides mm -hmm. the fact that you're now bringing food to the city to sell mm -hmm. at the farmer's market, mm -hmm. um, can you talk to me a little bit about the sort of the educational component? Are you training people on the farm? Are you? Yeah, so you saw Corbin. So we have Corbin yeah. and we have, um, so we have farms like, let me sort of step back. So Corbin and Bobby are two people that uh, work for us. We pay them. Mm -hmm. um, Corbin started as a volunteer with us and then eventually now he's come back so he'll, he'll be he's being paid and um we have a connection with farm school so farm school has an internship program and so since we've been at the farm we have a, a apprentice so you didn't see him because james is on mondays he comes okay. on monday uh, last year was francis and so they do an internship at our farm so that they can learn um, not only manual skills, but social skills, social justice skills, mm -hmm. to see how we operate, see how we interact with the farmers, see where our food goes. Um, so there's a definitely educational component. So social justice skills being organization, social access justice, to the levers to, of power? Right, to understand why we grow our food, where, where the food goes, because we have two farmers market. Mm -hmm. So our, our Food goes to high-end restaurants, it goes to Union Square Farmer's Market, and it goes to the Bronx Farmer's Market. Mm -hmm. And so um, getting people to understand that the food that we grow, that everyone has the right and privilege to eat that food. Mm -hmm. And that even in my community and low-end community, we talk about the cost and value of food, which is really, really important, a strong educational piece, because our farmer's market in the Bronx is surrounded by charity subsidized food system mm -hmm. and so getting people who feel that that food is free mm -hmm. i have to educate them to let them know that there's a cost and value of food that the food is not free right and why isn't it free and i have to educate them it's not free because i need for for someone to pay for their food to make a living to have a roof over my head to have a the quality of life and so my food is not free there's a cost now the amount that is uh, we sell at Union Square, difference from the amount that we sell at um, in the Bronx, but still it's a cost. Mm -hmm. And to educate people that there's a cost, because I think there's this preconceived notion that people in underserved communities can't afford to buy food. And it's like, I see it every day, I live each and every day, and when I'm talking to my customer, and I'm looking at his, uh, his her feet, and they got Michael Jordan sneakers, and they're talking to me and they got that iPhone in their hand, a Samsung Galaxy. To me, it's like, okay, so where are your priorities? So, you know, I'm telling you, you gotta pay $2 for, you know, some collard greens or something like that. And you give me a hassle, like, yeah, but you know, I did 79 cent a pound down the block. I said, well, those 79 cent collard greens, first of all, you don't know where they came from. You don't know if they've been sprayed with pesticide and insecticide. You don't know how long they've been stored. That's right. But I'm the farmer, and I can tell you they came from my farm, and I picked them, you know, 
this morning and yeah. I brought them down and, and that means something. And you grow organically. Right, and that means something. Yeah. And 99% of the customers understand that. And some will say, you know what, I understand, I still can't afford it, but they know that the food is not, there's a cost. Now, if a person comes to our market and said, and say, can I have an apple or peach or something to feed their family, we're not gonna deny that because we, you know, we, we know the struggles of our community. We're not going to deny anyone who says they're hungry. Mm-hmm. You know, you're hungry. You want, you need some potatoes. You need something, you know, some potatoes, a bunch of carrots or something to feed your family. Here's a bag. Take it. Mm-hmm. Take it. Um, because we know what hunger and poverty is. Yeah, and food we know, insecurity is a, it's, it's, it's a huge, right. it's a colossal problem in this country. Right. And we know there's a shame behind that. You know, there's shame behind it. One of my, one person last year, he was very sick. You can see he was really sick, but you can see out of the corner of my eye, he was trying to steal a peach. Hmm. So once he got his hand on the peach, I said, let me tell you something. Under no circumstances should you feel you need to steal. You hungry, you need to ask, but never feel that you need to steal because you're hungry. He's crying, I'm crying. I said, hold your head up high. You want a peach? I'm gonna give you a bag of peaches Mm -hmm. but never feel that you have to because you are hungry that you got to steal all you got to do is ask Mm -hmm. so so the uh the i lived um for a while in the 90s in west oakland and i had to drive 10 miles Mm -hmm. to get to a supermarket Mm -hmm. good produce section Mm -hmm. up in berkeley basically Mm -hmm. Um, how do you see, you know, this, this sort of concept of a food desert, mm-hmm. uh, neighborhoods where people mm-hmm. may want to buy good food mm-hmm. and they just can't, do you see what you're doing as, I mean, it seems to me to be a pretty, um, very efficient solution to grow things oh. right in the neighborhood. But you know what I say that because I just had this conversation the other day. First of all, sometimes I find offensive that people call my neighborhoods food deserts. Yeah, well, I, I know that I, I, yeah. I was a little cautious. No, using that's okay. That no, but that's okay. No, no, but you were referencing, and you were referencing a a a, uh, a concept, and um, because the bottom line is that we have hunger and poverty, we grow enough food and we waste enough food to feed people. That's number one. Yep. Number two, let's be honest. We know for a fact that the cheap, subsidized food, processed food goes into low-income neighborhoods, both urban and rural, Mm -hmm. and that the healthy, fresh produce goes in wealthy neighborhoods. We know this for a fact. And that in our neighborhoods, I tell people, you know, we got food, but we we don't have healthy food options. And so I'm trying to bring that point out. Here we are, the 21st century, right? Why do I have to see fast food after fast food as a fast? Because for me, it's a form of genocide. Mm-hmm. It's a strong word to say, but the fact that you know this is happening in all underserved communities, yeah. you know we're inundated with the McDonald's, the Wendy's, we're inundated with these fast food restaurants, but yeah, we don't have healthy food options. So I went to my council person yeah. in January, and I said, think about zoning. Think about zoning, thinking about zoning to limit the amount of concentration of fast food restaurant with an incentive to encourage healthy food restaurants. Yeah. I want to see a vegan restaurant. I want to see a vegetarian restaurant. Sure. I want to see owned, that. Owned not for nothing by people who live in the neighborhood. Right. And the thing about it, see, so, so don't tell me that no one knows what's happening. They know, you know, and it, for me, it's intentional. It's, in, it's intentional racism, sexism, and like I said, it's a form of genocide because this is the food that's killing people, mm-hmm. and we know it, and we know what the neighborhoods look like, and we know that these fast foods are in our neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to the exclusion me, of almost everything else. Sometimes. So for me, what are you doing about it? Mm-hmm. What are you doing about it? Sitting back and calling us food deserts and food swamps, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. means nothing. Yeah. Where's the action? Because everybody knows it's not rocket science. And until I see action, 
then it's intentional. Mm -hmm. It's intentional. There's no two ways about it. You can't say, oh, it's, I, I don't think about it. Oh it's, I don't, I, oh, it's something new. No. Everybody knows it. So until something is done, this is intentional because people are getting sicker. People are getting poorer. Yeah, lifespans are shortening. I mean, it's, yeah. So, all right, so talk to me about that from the point of view of, of the city council, for example, and the politicians with whom you, you interact mm -hmm. and, and who know you by name. And mm -hmm. um, are you making any progress in terms of getting zoning changed or try to limit the number and concentration of some of these terrible, terrible food outlets? Well, you know what's going to come from is going to come from the people because. You know, one thing about politics, I learn a lot about politics. Mm -hmm. They can't do a damn gone thing. You know, they just, they, what, po politics is like a game of chess. Mm -hmm. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. You do this, you do that. And so, as I, so I teach advocacy class. And so we were saying about this, <clears throat> what we're going to do is that we're going to start doing pop-ups. We're going to do friends of mine and people that I know that are, <clears throat> are vegans, vegetarian, that um, grow food and cook food that's healthy, we're going to do pop-ups in front of the big uh, fast food restaurants hmm. and tell people, we're going to do pop-ups and we're going to say, this is, what our, this is what we want in our community, this is what healthy food looks like, you eating those chicken McNuggets, come taste our McNuggets, which yeah. are, are plant-based yeah. and taste better. Yeah. Because I think Again, relying on the politicians to move things, we have to, what I'm starting to understand is the importance of social capital, mm -hmm. getting people within the community coming together to change things. And so by doing these pop-ups in certain areas in the Bronx, getting attention and getting people to realize, you know, this is what we want, yeah, yeah. not and what when, we need. And there's demand there, you can have a business that caters oh, to that. Oh boy. So, so by going, you know, waiting for the politicians to, no, it's going to come from us. Mm -hmm. We're the ones who are going to make that change. And we're going to make that change by going into the streets and saying, you know what, this is what a healthy food system looks like in our community, not what you see there. Mm -hmm. And, and sort of doing the pop-up either across the street mm -hmm. from them or right in front mm -hmm. of their establishment. Mm -hmm. So it does several things all at the same time. It's a form of protest, and you're mm -hmm. feeding people, and you're showing business owners in the neighborhood that people are hungry, literally, right. for this kind of food. Exactly. Hmm. And that's begun already? Or well, we just started to... Was, well, just getting going. Right. Well, one of my... As a matter of fact, um, so their, um, the class's pre presentation is next week, and so they were just giving us like a little idea of what that was going to look like. And so we just sort of stretched it in the conversation in the class. It's like, we're going to do some pop-ups. And so everybody raised their hand. And they're going to be in on it. And we'll just figure out, get some of our other friends and, and people who have co-ops that are, that are um, cooking healthy food and getting them together and just, you know, getting it organized and picking days and just, just doing it. Because people are starting to feel the need to take things into their own hands mm -hmm. because waiting for the politicians it's no. not it's not happening yeah. it's not happening we've been waiting for too long yeah. there's still nothing happening yeah so. yeah, yeah. So but it's, i mean it, it, to me it's 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 fascinating just how many different because everything's so interconnected and because food overlaps with every other part of human existence um it's it's fascinating to me how you've identified these particular kind of inflection points or mm -hmm. or, or places where um, you can exert some influence and start to send ripples outwards, mm -hmm. uh, and and not just by teaching people, but by like you said, just by example, <clears throat> showing what can be done. Yes. Um, and you know how you came up and you just you had that one business card and you just you made yeah. the call instead of not making the call and and you know look what's happened since then. Yep, and um, and one thing I'm really proud of is is really starting with my friends, the Black Farmers and Urban Gardening Conference, which will be in New York City this year. Mm -hmm. uh, we started that in 2010, just, just bringing awareness of the lack of black farmers throughout the, the country as we talk about a, a diverse food system, when we talk about wealth 
um, the fact that um, farmers in general are, are losing land, but black farmers are losing the most when it comes to the land, and a lot of it is still race-based, and um, trying to get, again, this, these young um, women and black and brown, young men and women who now want to farm, whereas before, that was, what, what, got, what got to me was last year I was on a panel um, just talking about food and social justice, and as I was leaving, Jane and I, because uh, she came with me as I was leaving to go speak someplace else, this woman and her seven-year-old daughter, they come running. Ms. Washington, Ms. Washington, I know you're busy. I know you got to go. Can my daughter take a picture with you? So I said, sure, yeah. So then she said to me, she said, my daughter turned to me and said, you know what she said? She says, when I grow up, Mom, I want to be a farmer. I did tears mm. because no way in my lifetime could I ever imagine a young black child at seven years old, seven years of age, saying that they wanted to grow up to be a farmer. Yeah. Did you, because you, you felt that way when you were a girl. Did you say it out loud to anyone? Or no, was I it, didn't say it out no, loud. No, no. No, I kept it, no, I kept it inside. I kept it inside because, I, as a matter of fact, I remember one time I went to a friend's house and I'll never forget, I went to a friend's house and there was a picture of my friend who was like leaning against like a, a fence and I had said, oh, look at, uh, her name was Wilma, oh, look at Wilma, she's on a farm and her mother yelled at me. What do you mean she's on a farm? She ain't on no farm. And, 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 and so you know I didn't say, I never said, I kept, yeah, she yelled at me because again, her relationship to what a farm was and that meant something bad. Mm -hmm. and, like you're talking about that stigma. That stigma. I'm but you say that. that the the young people that you're talking to today are, are much more receptive about oh, the idea. Oh, please. Are you kidding? They, let me tell you something. They're so powerful because they see examples now. Yeah. They see example of people farming. They understand their history. They're seeing how, how powerful land is. They're seeing the relationship to land and, and health. Because a lot of, you know, when I used to speak, speak to young people, when I used to go into my patients' homes, right, and the young people, they would look at their family members because all of a sudden they're now caregivers. Mm -hmm. So they would look at their family members and they would say, I don't want to be like them. Mm -hmm. I don't want to have amputations, strokes, end-stage renal disease, especially when you're a caretaker and you got to take a parent to dialysis three times, you got to wheel them, or you got to help someone get in and out of bed. Yeah, it, that's heavy. Young people look at that because I've seen it and they say, Mr. Washington, I don't, eat, I don't eat that food. You know, I try to get my mom to cut back on cooking with oil. Mm -hmm. Everything is fried. I'm trying to get her, you know, not to have sodas in the house, you know. So there's, this is young people, young people, because they see the effects, what was happening to their children. And they don't want, I mean, their parents, they don't want to be like yeah. that. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, millennials take a lot of grief. And it's almost become like a buzzword for just, you know, lazy and addicted to a phone. But mm. I have to say, my son's 14. Um, and a lot of my friends have kids who are, you know, in between sort of little, little and college age. And I have to say, man, I'm really impressed with this, this newest generation. That's right. I find them to be extremely thoughtful and very sharp. Mm -hmm. And they have high standards. And frankly, they're pretty fucking pissed at us. Right. Oh, without a doubt. You know what I said? I'm so upset. You know what I go around and say? Because I grew up in the 60s. And it was make love, not war. We were the love of each other. And I said, what happened to us? We effed it up. I said, we effed it up so bad that we have now have a young generation that is saying, you know what? Sit back. You don't mess it up. Now it's our turn to try to get it right. Yeah. And that's what they're trying to do. And my hats off go, you know, and, and, and they see the importance of planet and people and not profit. It was, it's, not, it's not the profit first. It's yeah. like, you know, the intention is, look, you know, this is a planet, you know, this is what, we, we got to live with this, so we got to try to do something to save it. And, yeah. then, and then we got to, you know, it's people, there's lives that are at stake. And so I think the young people really understand it, and I'm, I'm really impressed with them, yeah. like I said. I'm just I think, you know, you can never, you know, divide things so simply, but I think you, you kind of, you either proceed from the assumption that we're all in this together, or you don't. And if you don't, 
it's a problem it's because a problem. those are the people who are running the world right now and it's not going well it's yes. going it's going catastrophically badly and yep. so if you put profit ahead of community or you know your own personal enrichment or mm -hmm. despoiling someone else's water supply mm -hmm. for your own mm -hmm. advancement it's it's a it's not only is it a non-starter but it's it's a death sentence for everyone else and yourself and your own kids down the road because right you can't ever sequester the water once it's poisoned it all ends yeah. up in the same place that's another thing food and water i tell people you know what what do you think is the most important thing because at the end of the day you won't be able to eat that car you won't be able to eat those jewelries that you're wearing you know you won't be eat, be eating that two or three houses that you have you know what the person will be able to grow their own food and understand the importance of water and saving water, those are the ones that are gonna survive. The ones that invest in materialistic things, those are the ones that are not gonna survive. Because yeah. at the end of the day, when the time comes and someone can give me tons and tons of gold, I say, hey, you can have it. I'm gonna say, I can't eat that. Yeah, yeah. And does that, I mean, you've mentioned the, the spiritual component to your gardening, your farming. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, is that, because in my experience, I mean, that, that I'm not a religious person, but I, mm -hmm. do, I do sit with these notions a lot, mm -hmm. and I do love nature, and mm -hmm. I love being in the woods, and I love being in the garden. And to me, working with the dirt, I like to just go be in nature and not do right. anything. Mm -hmm. But I also really like to work with dirt, and I like right. to grow plants, and I like to feed people mm -hmm. with those plants. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it really does help, I think, for me, and I can only speak to my own experience, but it really does build a place in me that doesn't care about possessions, which to exactly. me seems to be, at least if you read the book, kind of the core of a lot of religions. Right. Not so much how people act. <laughs> right. But, but the, the whole the message of, of trying to push your ego down and dissolve it a little bit, uh, yeah. it's really, gardening's really good for that to me. Really good because you know the ancestors we never owned anything. Mm -hmm. As soon as, as soon as you know, food became a commodity, land became, we started owning things that 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 really messed things up. Because back in the day, we never thought about owning land and owning people and owning seeds. You know, it's like you grew what you had and you moved on. You didn't extract till there's hardly anything left. And I think for me on the farm is, first of all, I found that the Linnea P people were once here. And so when I'm out there and I'm listening to the wind blow, first of all, I want to give thanks to the people that were there before and to acknowledge them that they were there and to, within myself, the sort of the spiritual grounding is that I want to be able to give back to the land instead of thinking about taking away from the land and just sitting down and just sometimes just being in the the spirit of just listening to the wind and and just being in that presence and just being thankful for a lot of things thankful for the rain and the clouds and the wind and not taking anything for granted and even in my backyard you know, all my community gardens just sitting up early in the morning and listening to the birds and be thankful for that. And the trees, I love trees because I think trees are like like people, they have their own hidden message and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And just, I'm 65 years of age and I'm really, really thankful for life um, and understanding there's a purpose to my life and that at the end of the day, I just want to make sure that I made a difference in someone's life through a kind word, thought, or deed, or that I left um, this planet making the world a little bit better. And yeah. I think if every one of us had that sort of intention to stop sometimes, you know, stop with the hustle and bustle and just stand where you are and be thankful for where you are and uh, be present with that. The, 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 yeah, and then try yeah. to make it a little bit better. Try to make it a little bit yeah. better. Well, thanks for talking to me. Thanks for having me. This was a pleasure. Pleasure is mine.
Karen Washington, risenrootfarm.com. I'm at acookblog.com, cookpod.net. Cookblog on Instagram. Music by my son Milo Barrett, smilob.com. Please like, please subscribe, please rate five stars, tell your friends, and thanks very much for listening. <laughs>